Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to be able to come together and study that we still have the freedom here in Tennessee to join together and worship you. We ask that your spirit will uh, join us today, enlighten us, guide us, and give us uh, discernment to differentiate uh, your kingdom's principles from those that are uh, of this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number two in the quarterly education, and the title is The Family. Over the last year, have you perceived that we are living in the end times? That the second coming of Christ is approaching? Have 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 you perceived it? Have you perceived that evil forces are increasing their assault on human liberty and freedom? Have you seen evil more clearly exposed in our society than ever before? Have you heard the enemy roaring like a lion, increasing the state of fear among people, that fear is, is growing, people are becoming more afraid, afraid of all kinds of things, constantly the roar, fear, fear, fear. Have you seen society fracturing Pitting itself in little little groups against each other, or big groups against each other. Well, I have as well. And I want to tell you, it, 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 more than ever before, we must fix our eyes on Christ. The author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the key. The true Jesus. Not the historic fraud that infected Christianity when Constantine converted This view of an imperial dictator who imposes rules and imposes punishment. Not that Jesus, that's a fraud. The true Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, whose laws are design laws. And as we put him first and central, as we worship him, as we understand his methods and his designs, we and we practice and we gain discernment. The ability to differentiate God's kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. And as we teach God's principles in this time in history, this message to lighten the world, should should we teach God's principles only historically? In other words, how Jesus taught the Pharisees in his day and exposed the, the fraudulentness of illegal religion in his day. Should we only teach God's principles historically? How Paul in the first century uh, uh sent a message in how to relate to the government of his day? Should we only teach God's principles historically, or should we teach those principles how they apply to us today? Should we differentiate God's workings today, his movements, how he's at, his methods from the systems of the world today? Should we do that? Consider these three historic quotes from historic Adventism. The first is out of Review and Herald, November 17, 1891. And we're going to be trying to identify how Satan works. And if you can understand the method, what he does, how he does it, then you can spot it and you can see him working. I'm going to give you three quotes. One is going to first talk about Satan. One's going to talk about the Jewish people. One's going to talk about the time of the reformers. See if you see the same method in action. Then we're going to say, can we apply that today? Here's the first. Review and Herald, November 17, 1891. Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which the flesh is heir. He has represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable. 
What method is Satan using here? It's called projection. It's, it's called projection. And what does a movie projector do? It projects out of itself an image. You see the image on a screen, but where's the actual film? In the projector. Okay? Satan is the source of evil. Satan does evil. Satan incites evil. But what does he do? He ascribes evil to God. God is the evil. He projects it away from himself. He points to some other as the cause of the evil. That's called projection. It's a form of deception. It's a form of lying. Not only is evil being done, but the one doing the evil blames an innocent party for the evil. Understand, there's two things happening. Evil's being done, and then an innocent is blamed for it. Two things are happening. Satan's method. Do evil, blame and project out on an innocent. Okay? This is the method of Satan. Let's watch for it. So this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 605. By departing from God's law, the Hebrews had failed to become the people that God desired to make them. And then all the evils which were the result of their own sin and folly, they charged upon the government of God. So completely had they been, become blinded by sin. Do we hear the same method again? Doing evil, denying denial, lying to self, and then blaming the innocent. It's, it's, it's God. God is the bad one here. Some innocent gets blamed. Same method. This is what apostates do. And then Great Controversy, page 397. In the days of the Reformation, its enemies, enemies of the Reformation, charged all the evils of fanaticism upon the very ones who were laboring most earnestly against it. What method do you hear being used here? The opposers. Now, for us in this room, do we understand the Reformation as a movement of God? Yes. So the Holy Spirit were leading the reformers to bring new light and truth, to break out of the dark ages. But those who were the enemies of the Reformation charged all the evils of fanaticism upon those who were working most decidedly against fanaticism. Do you see the same method at work? To do evil, to do fanatical evil, and then blame the innocents. The ones who didn't, in fact, the ones working against it. Could you argue that it's even foundational to the, the outworking of sin? Because Adam and Eve both did the same thing. Yes. Eve, it was that serpent you created, God. Adam, it was that woman you yes. created me. Yes, this is Satan's method. Yes. Denial, externalization, you can call it. Blame game, you can call it. Projection, you can call it. But it's a form of deceit. It's a form of lying. Do we see this in our society today? Movements and groups doing evil. And the more discernment you have, folks, 
I'm not even going to start down the list because some people are not yet, they, they'll agree with me. I just showed it from history. So they'll, but as soon as I try to apply it to certain things happening in society, there are certain people out there listening to us who will get agitated, get upset, get angry, attack this ministry because that's too much light for them. Applying the truth, but, but I would just look at the method. If you see this method being used, it is not a method that God uses. It is not a method that God uses. So, regardless of the cause that's being advocated, there are causes out there that the cause in and of itself may be a righteous cause. But the grand deception is the methods being employed are evil methods. Just like fanaticism was not righteous, opposing fanaticism was righteous. But notice in this quote again, in the days of the Reformation, the enemies, its enemies, enemies of the Reformation, charged the evils of fanaticism against the ones who were opposing it. So they were, they were claiming they're opposing fanaticism. That's a right position. Let's oppose fanaticism. But they were actually the ones fostering fanaticism. I want you to see that. You'll see the same thing in many places today when people's voices rise up against racism. The ones protesting racism are like the ones protesting fanaticism. And they're almost always the source of racism. Almost always. Let that breathe. Yeah, get your mind around it. If you want to look at, if you're an evidence-based thinker, just look at the evidence. It's quite profound. But it's projection. Do evil, and then project it on the ones working against it. Do we have a role at this time in our history to teach people discernment, to look at the evidence, to understand the methods, to understand how to apply? Do we have an alarm to sound, to wake people up? Remember where we are in our history right now. According to the parable of Jesus... Of the ten virgins, there are five wise and five foolish. How many are asleep? All of them are asleep. We're trying to send the message. Wake up, folks. Wake up. Open your eyes. See what's actually Discern what's going on. Now, remember, all ten had lamps. Lamps are the word of God. Only five had oil. Oil is a character of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit in the heart that renews and enlightens the mind. So you can have the word of God without the Holy Spirit and you are a legal religion person. Like the Pharisees. You will have a legal religion. You will not have a renewed heart and you will not have discernment to actually understand the true principles or design laws of God. You'll radiate more heat than light. Yeah. (laughs) And so this parable is... All are sleeping, only those who have the oil of the Holy Spirit in their hearts when they wake up are going to be effective in discerning truth from error and living out the principles of God. The other group are not. There's another parable where, where Jesus deals with those who don't even have the word of God but have the oil of the Holy Spirit so they have good character, and that's the story of the Good Samaritan. In the story of the Good Samaritan, you have the Levite, and you have the priest, the injured man, and you have the Samaritan. The Levite and the priest had the lamp. They had the word. They had the the Torah. They had the law. 
They had no oil. They had no spirit. And thus they would leave an injured man beside the road. The Samaritan, he had no scripture. He had no law. He didn't keep Sabbath. He didn't sacrifice at temple. He didn't pay tithe. But what he did is he sacrificed to help others. He had a heart where God's law was written on it again. Okay? At the end of time, only those who have the Holy Spirit working in their heart to renew them in God's principles are going to be the ones prepared to meet him when he comes. But we have a message and a ministry to wake people up, to discern, to stop being duped. Let's keep going on with this. The reason I'm bringing this up, we have a role to play. We have a message to wake people up. But what if doing so? What if calling people to discern, to understand this method of, of doing evil and projecting it on innocents who are working actually against the evil? What happens if by exposing that stuff to help wake people up, we're accused of being political. Should we stop? Is there a difference between exposing the destruction that occurs when God's methods are violated and advocating for a politician, a political party, or a legislation? Are those the same? Okay, I'll say it again. Look, you're confused. Is there a difference between exposing the destruction that occurs when people violate God's law and advocating for a politician. Are, are the, are, isn't there a difference between those? They're not the same. We can expose the corruption of Satan's method, uh, advance the cause of God's kingdom, and not advocate for any political party or politician. And we're not. Common Reason Ministries advocates for no politician, no political party, and no legislation. We are not interested in getting a person elected or laws passed. We are interested in freeing people's hearts and minds from worldly methods and establishing people in the kingdom of God. That's what we're interested in. Okay? Now, I was reflecting on the issues this week because several messages have come in this week accusing me and our ministry of being political because I'm exposing some of this corruption that is sucking people in. We're going to bring more of this out in class today. But as I was reflecting on this, I I read Psalms 49 again this week out of the remedy of the Lord in song, and I wanted to share it with you and consider what it says in light of what's happening in the world today. So let me share this with you. Hear this, everyone. Listen carefully. Every person who lives on earth, both young and old, rich and poor alike, I will tell you real wisdom because I understand how reality works. I will use my insight to discern profound proverbs and bring forth hidden meaning like music from a harp. Why should I fear in the days when evil abounds? Are you fearing today? See, there's messages going out that want to take good Christian folk and make them afraid. And based on fear, get them to compromise their Christian principles and practices and act to protect self and Dominating control of the people. Why should I fear in the days when evil abounds? When the depravity and villainy of my enemies surround me, those who believe they are superior because of their wealth and boast of their great riches. No one can ever cure their own terminal condition. No human can buy the remedy from God. The cost to security is beyond our means. Nothing we could provide would ever cure our mortal state so that we would live forever and never experience death. For all can see that everyone dies, the wise, the foolish, and the thoughtless brutes. Everyone perishes and leaves their wealth to others. 
Their inner thoughts, their characters are fixed as the as their permanent state of being. Though they claim Though they claimed the earth as their own, their prized, selfish, sin-infected world will not last. They will die just like the brutes. This is the inevitable end for those who trust in themselves and of all who follow them and embrace their selfish ways. Like mindless sheep, they are destined for the graves and death will consume them. When the earth is made new, the righteous, those restored to God's perfect design, will walk over their graves. Their bodies will turn to dust in the grave, and they will never live in heavenly mansions. But God will heal my terminal condition and resurrect me from the grave. He will most certainly make me to live again with him. Don't be distraught when the selfish become rich. When the estate, when their estates become increasingly opulent and grand, for they will take nothing with them when they die, their wealth will not follow them into the grave, though they proclaim themselves fulfilled and triumphant, and they are praised for their success, they will die like all the other selfish people before them, and they will never see the light of life again. A person who is wealthy without understanding the reality of God's design is like the mindless beast doomed to perish. Do you hear a message in this psalm for us today? See, do you hear the messaging in the world today from certain groups in society that is designed to incite jealousy, to incite envy, to make people feel it isn't right that some people have more wealth than they have? Do you hear messaging that is designed to inspire people with a sense of unfairness and inspire them to seek power in order to take from others rather than simply earn their own way? When you hear this messaging, do you see it inspiring love, even love for the less fortunate? Do you see that? Or do you see class division, resentment, and hostility brewing? Selfishness leads to jealousy, envy, anger, and hate at not having as much as others. Which leads to feeling one is being taken advantage of if others have more than you. And if you have been negligent in your own personal development and responsibility, rather than taking ownership over your own self-negligence, you will externalize and project and blame some other external forces that are keeping you down. It causes people to value the world and the wealth and possessions of this world more than the riches of God's kingdom, truth, love, freedom, and a godly character. When people are filled with love of possessions and become envious and demand equality of stuff, what happens? Do we see people becoming uplifted in society, coming together in mutual love and encouragement, or do we see people being destroyed in society, fracturing? This is the great trap of Satan, which he has used successfully over and over and over again through human history. He incites the fearfully selfish heart to become jealous and envious 
to look at the world's wealth as the ideal, to accept the world's methods as right, to believe the lie that the power over others method of domination, of imposed law, of violence to force one's way is the right way to settle an injustice and make things fair. In Satan's world, the strong survive and the weak die. And Satan leads such selfish and envious people to use human governments to take from others in order to get for self. This is what all aristocracies have done throughout human history. It's what all Marxism does, all socialism, all communism, all Stalinism, 100% of the time these when these principles are practiced in society, the masses are exploited for the benefit of the few ruling elites, the party members in power. What makes this so evil is that the masses are hurt under the umbrella of the lie that they're being helped. It's true. That it is for their good. What makes it so diabolical is that the people themselves by embracing selfishness in their heart, by wanting more for self that they haven't actually earned, by embracing envy, are tricked into embracing these very practices under the guise of doing good, of making everything fair. It is a great deceit. And it occurs because people have embraced Satan's law of me first, of getting more for self, of jealousy, of envy, and that imposed law and, and that imposing law is how one gets to be righteous or righteousness in society by making rules and enforcing them. They don't actually love and don't understand how love operates functionally. They've not sought to live in harmony with God's kingdom and his methods. Now, I want to say this also. There are many compassionate people in society who get easily tricked by these purveyors of evil, this deceit, this destruction, because they allow their feelings to rule them and don't understand how love actually functions. They don't understand the difference between God's law and the laws of this world. And they go along with these destructive methods because they want a more fair and just society. They really want it to be more fair and just But they are the blind who are following blind guides. And they are blind. Because you can't get those outcomes in violation of God's methods. You can't get stronger by refusing to exercise. You can't. You can't. It's not possible. And this is what they want. They want somebody else to do the exercises and they gain the strength. We have a higher calling. We are not to make riches of this world our focus. We are to make God's kingdom, God's reality, God's methods the focus. 
We are to love God supremely and every human being as ourselves, as part of our own body. And so we don't hate the people caught up in this deception, this destructive cascade. We have deep, heartbreaking sadness and grief for them. We long to help free them from their own pitiful condition and the, and the violence that they're participating in because you understand that they're not actually destroying the righteous. They're destroying themselves. This is how Christ on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. I'm their source of life. They're cutting themselves off from life. That's what they're doing. They don't even know it. We don't have to hate these individuals and these people. We should identify the methods as being contrary to God's methods. We should seek to present truth and love to free hearts and minds. But we should have the greatest pity and compassion on the people caught up in these movements. It is only with God's methods that we find true unity, true equality. As soon as we, though, as soon as we try to achieve God's goals with the methods of the world through human governments, we corrupt the message, damage the mission, and ultimately end up promoting Satan's cause. I'm going to say that again. Whenever we try to achieve God's goals by harmonizing with the methods of the world, in other words, using human governments to get there, we will damage the message, corrupt the message, damage the mission, and promote Satan's cause. All right, well, now that was my introduction. (laughs) Now we're going to get to family. First paragraph, it says, as human beings, we are always ideally learning. In fact, life itself is a school. There's no question. We are all learning. Life does teach. The question is, though, what are we learning? Does the fact that we are always learning mean that we're always learning truth? Or can we be lifelong learners and learn a lifelong falsehood? Falsehood upon falsehood upon falsehood. But we keep learning more falsehood. What would you say would be the keys to learning truth? Any keys you can think of? Central keys. Well, we we would need to establish right principles for learning, have right sources of truth, source material needs to be, and mature, healthy teachers to help us learn truth. Seems these would be keys. Right principles, right sources, Healthy teachers. Would those be keys? And under and so willingness to learn. And oh that's a good one. And a willingness to learn. Yeah. Most human beings come into the world eager and willing to learn. But that can be crushed out of them. The belief in a lie. Yep. I destroy yep. That. Yeah. Yep. Let's go through some other keys. One of the things to actually learning truth is to come to understand reality, the way in which learning actually happens. We learn by experience. We learn by instruction. We learn by doing. We learn by observing. We learn by worshiping. We learn by relationships, which is a form of experience. In other words, we learn. That's how we we learn. That's how it works. The integrative evidence-based approach. Harmonizing scripture. Science and experience, and I'm not going to 
go into that because we've done it so many, many times before, but when you separate those three threads, you introduce errors. Science by itself leads to godlessness. Experience by itself leads to mysticism. Scripture by itself leads to confusion. 40,000 different Christian groups arguing back and forth, this verse, that verse, this ritual, that ritual. Integrative, we want them all to harmonize. I can tell you, if you have a truth that is supported by Scripture, it's supported by science, and you've tested it, it's actually how reality works in your own experience, you can be confident you're standing on truth. All three threads support it. Having the right worldview, the right worldview, what lens do you see the world through? There are facts, I tell my patients this all the time, and my patients... So many of my patients are confused because they don't understand this. There are facts, historical facts, data points, realities. And then there are interpretations of facts, how those facts are interpreted. Historical facts can't be changed. They can be updated if they've been reported to us inaccurately so that we can get more accurate accounting of the facts. But the facts of what they are, they are. Okay? But the interpretations of those facts, they absolutely can be changed. We can have all types of interpretations, and it's the interpretations of the facts, the meanings that we ascribe to them, that actually change us. And we have the ability to change those. So having the right worldview, there's a little bone found some such a place in Indonesia someplace, and this one little bone now we've taken, and we've built an entire skeleton of a, of a dinosaur out of this one little bone, and, and we've told people that this dinosaur lived uh, you know, 200 million years ago, and it ate this thing, and that. How do we know from this one little bone? Okay, we have one fact. We have a bone. Everything else is interpretation. It's all interpretation. And that's all based on the worldview you have before you found the bone. The worldview you have will tell you how you're going to interpret the meaning of that fact. Understanding God's design laws. These are testable, reproducible, unchanging constants of reality. These are powerful tools for you to learn discernment. The more of the design laws you understand, live in harmony with, the more effective you can be at discerning when different theories come along. Different, well, this Bible passage must mean this because it says it right here. Right here it says, I do this and I do that. Okay. It must mean what it says, right? Well, test it against the design laws. If it contradicts one of the design laws, like the law of liberty or the law of love, then you know it doesn't mean what they tell you it means. God's design laws don't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So either our translation is inaccurate, we have interpreted it wrongly, we don't understand the metaphor or the implications of what's being described there. Understanding the nature and character of sin which goes back to understanding the design laws. Before you can understand sin, sin is transgression of the law, you actually have to know what the law is. And if you don't understand the law or design protocols for life, if, uh, if you think it's simply a system of rules, they're perfect rules, of course, but they're still just rules like we make up, and God made his list, and he uses a list that he knows things operate best upon, and, and, uh, and if, if nobody ever murders or, or commits adultery or steals, we have a much, better, a much better society. So he made this list for us, but, and he has perfect record-keeping and perfect accounting because he's got an angel following you everywhere, but, but, the, but, but 
sin is breaking that list. And then God has a, a judicial magistrate one day, and he's going to go down the record. And if you haven't had some legal payment made to your account, then he's going to require to inflict punishment. If that's your view of sin, you've got a serious distortion to reality. That's not how reality works. What is wrong with committing adultery? Well, God has a rule. If he would have just not put that in stone, adultery is fine. (laughs) He would have just not written that one down. No. Is the problem with adultery that God punishes you for it or it actually corrupts your character? It warps you. It hardens your heart. It makes you into a cheat. It makes you into a liar. It makes you into an untrustworthy human being. It makes you more selfish. If you commit adultery, can you commit the act, even if your spouse never finds out, without harm to you? No. Even if you're never found out, you're still, you're still damaged by it. And you're either healed, you repent and have a renewed heart where God's grace changes you back into now a loyal, trustworthy, reliable human being, or you become more corrupt and more untrustworthy. Okay? All God's laws work this way. They're all designed how reality works. So understand design laws. If you understand design law, then you understand sin as a condition of being, which is out of harmony with how God built life. It's a terminal state of being. And thus Jesus came to remedy or heal the situation. Fix the brokenness in us. That's why we get new hearts and right spirits. That's why the law is written in the heart and mind. That's why we get circumcision of the heart by the spirit. So the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is put in. All the metaphors are teaching recreation, regeneration of the heart and mind of the sinner. It's not penal legal. All the penal legal stuff is an infection based on accepting Satan's lie about God's law. So methods of learning. Oh, and trusting God is the ultimate source of truth. And, the, and if, you have a, if you're a lover of truth and you follow truth, where truth leads, truth always leads you back to the source of truth, which is God. Understanding loving truth is not the same thing as loving your church's doctrines. You know the difference between those two, right? Loving truth is not the same thing as establishing a list of creed, a creed with a certain fundamental list of beliefs that you can recite by memory and know them. Because once you recite that list and this is your truth, what happens is you set your stakes. Here's the truth. And until my church votes in its uh, annual or uh, every five-year meeting to update that list, I can accept no new light, no new truth can change. I have actually created a list of beliefs that's designed to enlighten that actually puts me under an umbrella that keeps any new light from coming in. That's what happens with fundamental beliefs. That's why the founders of the Adventist church stated over and over again that the Adventist system has no creed. And that's why when they made their creed, they, they, as all good legalists will do, since there was a written statement by one of the founders that we do not have a creed, the Bible and the Bible alone is our creed, we could not have a creed. And so when they made their creed, they couldn't call it a creed because we have a statement that says you can't have a creed. So what did they do? They called it a fundamental belief system. Now, if you look up in a dictionary what a creed is, you know what a definition of a creed is? A list of fundamental beliefs. Okay, But that's what all good legalists do. They always find a loophole to do exactly what they're not supposed to do. Okay, There is, for the lover of truth, they understand that God's infinite, we're finite. The gap is an infinite gap. And so Thessalonians, meaning that we never stop advancing in truth. Even in eternity future, even when the earth is made new, even when we're sinless, we will still keep growing. 
That's why the wicked are those who did not love the truth and thus be saved. It's not that they didn't love their fundamental beliefs or their creeds. They didn't love the truth. It's not that they didn't love their doctrines. It's not that they didn't love their religion. They didn't love the truth. Meaning they didn't have a heart that says, I love truth and I want to grow and advance in truth. I want to move forward in truth. I want to remove any distortions I have and I want to update with better understandings of God, his kingdom, his methods. I want to advance. I want to keep moving. That's the only way you have life. You stop, you die. And that's what belief systems do. They kill the spirit of the church. Nobody grows anymore. We become dead in our formalism, in our legalism, in our rules, in our rituals. But we feel good because we, ha- we, we have all the rules and we've kept them. We've got the checkboxes made. Methods of, uh, of learning include receiving information. And we can receive information by listening, by reading, by watching So one way of learning is to receive information, but I want to point out that there's active and passive receiving. The passive receiving is listening and accepting what you hear because you've invested the source, the speaker, the author, whomever the source of this information is. You've invested the source with some type of authority, some type of superiority over you, some type of expertise, some type of position of office, uh, some type of authority, And so you take the position, well, my teacher said it, therefore it must be true. Or I read it in a textbook or a science journal, and therefore it must be true. You're not thinking, you're just assimilating somebody else's thoughts. That's what some people call being a reflector of other people's thoughts. Not a thinker, that's a reflector. You simply regurgitate back the indoctrination you were even. And I will tell you, much of Christianity, much of religions of the world, that's what they want from you. They want you to be a receiver. They want you to go into your uh, indoctrination classes before baptism, where they will tell you all the right things to think, and they will give you the list of proof texts for each thing to think's right. But they actually don't want you to try sometime going to a baptismal class and start questioning the pastor who's, who's, on what he's teaching you. And actually start exposing where, where some of the things he's teaching you are actually not, not correct. Like imposed law versus design law. And the reason Christ had to die was not to pay a penalty, but to actually fix the brokenness in us. See what happens. You're not ready for baptism. You're not ready. Stop thinking. You need to believe. If you just had more faith, if you just had more faith and trusted more, the Bible said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it, stop questioning. It's corrupt. There's active listening, though. Active listening or receiving is hearing what someone else says and teaches, but then thinking it through for yourself, examining the evidence of yourself, weighing them, uh, being like the Bereans in Scripture, testing everything for yourself, and then Believing only that which you understand is consistent with how reality works and is reasonable and makes sense. And so you don't believe it, so you don't say, I believe it because Dr. Jennings said it. That would be a terrible reason for you to believe something. Please don't go out of here saying, you know what, I believe this because uh, that's what Dr. Jennings teaches. Terrible, terrible. 
No, I believe it because this is how reality works. Let me explain to you how reality works. This is what the scripture says about it. This is what science shows about it. This is how experience actually demonstrates it to be true. This is how reality works. It makes so much much, much sense to me. So one way is is, uh, receiving. Another way of learning is participating. Not just receiving information, listening, but participating. Discussion, role play, actual play, playing like children do. And this participating type of learning is less obvious type of learning. When you're in a lecture like this, you know you're being taught something to think. When you're reading a book, you know you're, you're reading something to consider. But play learning or participation learning is often more insidious, meaning it's difficult to realize what you're actually being taught. This is how um, many people through this type of role play or discussion or even playing, come to accept the lie about God's law. You see, in human systems, all human systems use arbitrary rules made up. All of them. And thus, as kids grow up, they play lots of games. And every game we play has a list of arbitrary rules. They're just made up rules. And the focus of the play is on the rules. We need to know the rules so we can play fair. That's the focus, is knowing that baseball, you have to be on base, and et cetera, et cetera. All the rules of different sports of different games. We have different rules for different sports, okay? And, and knowing the rules, and we focus on that to play the game. The focus is on playing the game. But what you're actually learning is that justice and righteousness is through right rule-keeping. And that justice and righteousness or rule-breaking, is enforced through an external authority who oversees the referee, the umpire, the judges, the police, God. And so this is why this imperialistic view of God is so deeply embedded in the human psyche, because even though it's not specifically taught that God works this way originally, in every place it's reinforced, that's right, that's right, that's right. The referee called you out. No, it's true. You might get a, a corrupt referee. Just get a new one. Just, just replace him with a righteous one. And since God's righteous, we can always make sure he'll only call people out who are out. Another type of learning, just pointing out, this is type of participating. And that's why cults, cults always teach people through participating. They'll focus on something quite innocuous like gardening or group dynamics, but the whole group has to do this and wear the same thing, eat at the same time, sleep at the same time, and thus they'll only bring in one or two new members at a time because they rely on the whole group to enforce the indoctrination through participation, not through lecture. It's just what we do. It's the right way to do it. Part of the cult indoctrination. Doing through application You see, you won't have a cult with 30 members bring in 60 people who are not part of the cult at one time. They won't do that. Because the 60 who don't agree with what the cult's doing would actually then bring the others out of the cult. Do you all see that? Doing through application, through practicing, through editing, through writing, through correcting, through building, through teaching. This is why you should teach. I learn so much more teaching than I do just sitting, listening, 
so much more. If you ever prepared a lesson, you will learn so much more. If you have to get the concept in, in your mind in such a way that you can explain it to somebody else, you have to know it much more intimately from different angles. Now, I will tell you, when I first started teaching, which was uh, a long time ago, um, there was a time when I taught simply by regurgitating authority sources. I was not confident that I really understood the material. I understood, the, I understood what was true. This is true, but I didn't really understand why it was true. I just knew it was true. And so I would have to proof text my way through the, the idea. That was a while back. I don't teach that way. Try, try to. I try to bring the evidences in to support it, but I understand it works that way even without the evidence. Even without the proof text, for instance. Even when I quote from some historical figure. In medical school, they used to have the phrase, Karen knows this, see one, do one, teach one. Learn by observation, learn by application, learn by teaching. Okay? Our lesson title is The Family this week. Uh, we are going to go over today. I'm just going to prepare you for that right now. <laughs> I got an email this week, and this email I thought would be appropriate to share since we're f- talking on the family. We are so blessed to learn about God's design laws, sanctuary, his character of love, his principles and methods from you. Thank you so much for bringing a greater understanding of, uh, greater understanding and love for God. I grew up in a church with a legalistic view of God. By being legalistic with the children, uh, while the children were growing up at home, we have failed as parents. We should have helped them experience God. Although three of our children are professionals, they are not interested in coming to church. But since our understanding and attitude has changed, they are still close in relationship to us. We gave them your books and encouraged them to listen to your Sabbath school class. We pray for them, love them, and remain helpful to them. We wait for the Holy Spirit to continue to work in their hearts as we... as to work in their hearts as we did mess up totally. But there is a lot of resistance from our church members to study and see if what you are saying is right. One of them did start uh, listening to you. We keep sharing these truths with our Sabbath school class as it is vital, and we hope one day they will be open to have you in our church. Oh, the day. We we want to let you know that we much uh, that we I'm sorry we want to let you know how much we appreciate your ministry. Uh, we enjoy Sabbath school class discussions with all the members' participation. May God continue to bless your ministry and uh, that all will be enlightened and our Savior will come and take us home soon. So as I I, I put this here because I'm going to read a historic quote. We're going to talk about this historic quote and this is out of um, Desire of Ages, page 69. So from the earliest times, the faithful in Israel had given much care to the education of the youth. I'm going to pause right there. Do we do do this today? If we are not giving care to the education of our our youth, does that mean we're not faithful? There's the comment. The faithful in Israel had given much care to the education of the youth. If we don't give care to the education of youth, are we then not faithful? I think that's not an unreasonable argument to make, isn't it? I think it's reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah. What is the purpose of education of our children? Number one, teach them the reality of God's kingdom and bring them to Christ. That's the number one purpose of education. That's right. 
What are the consequences of allowing the state to take over their education? Turn on the television, you'll see the consequences. <laughs> we hopefully might get to some more of that later. Uh, but if a person today has grown children that, like our email above, like in our email above, and in their personal journey, uh, this this uh, this parent looks back, and, and they today now have new insights about God. Should they look back on how they raised their children with guilt for not having taught them what they themselves didn't know at that time? No. Can they look back with disappointment or regret? Can they look back with disappointment or regret, but without guilt? Yes. Are you understanding disappointment? I'm disappointed I didn't know this sooner. I regret not having discovered this sooner. Is that the same thing as guilt? When is guilt appropriate? When you did it knowingly. When, there you go, when we knowingly do wrong. So looking at your child's misconduct, your adult child's misconduct, is it appropriate for you to feel guilt? It is not. That would be like your child touching a hot stove and you getting burned. <laughs> it does. That's just that's in, inappropriate. Can a person teach what they themselves do not know? Can you teach your child Spanish if you don't know Spanish? Could a parent in the 19th century teach their children to floss their teeth? No, because it was not even, floss hadn't been developed. It wasn't even understood. No. Should a parent who lived at the time when floss was first introduced look back and say, oh, what a bad parent. I didn't teach my kids to floss when they were small. When they themselves didn't know. No. Are you a lover of truth? See, what I'm teaching you here is one of the reasons why people are afraid to advance in the truth. If you have the false paradigm that any new truth you discover, you're guilty, you're bad, you're failure, because you didn't teach that new truth to your own children, you can't grow in truth. You stay locked into a state of understanding that you had when you were 22. I'm glad I don't think like I did when I was 22. Okay, But if you understand truth is unfolding and you are not responsible for teaching things you didn't yourself understand, then you give yourself grace and you allow yourself to grow in advance. We must not punish ourselves with false guilt for not teaching our children things we ourselves did not know. Continue on with the quote. The Lord has directed that even from babyhood, the children should be taught of his goodness and his greatness, especially as revealed in his law and show and shown in the history of Israel. Song and prayer and lessons from Scripture were to be adapted to the opening mind. Fathers and mothers were to instruct their children that the law of God is an expression of his character. Mm, Listen to that. And that as they received the principles of the law into the heart, the image of God was traced on the mind and soul. Teach our children the greatness and goodness of God revealed in his law, and that law is an expression of his character, what's received into the heart. The image of God is traced on the mind and soul. 
There's a design law involved there, guys. I hope you heard it. The law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. The law of truth, expelling lies. The law of love, freeing us from fear. But what law lens do you teach Scripture and the reality of God through? If you go to Scripture already accepting God's law works like human law, and then teach that God's law is a transcript of his character, and therefore God is a rule giver, and he makes rules, and he's a righteous judge, and he sends his angel, his guardian angel stays at the door of the theater, the recording angel goes in to record the evil things you watch, so you'll be punished for it righteously later. You know the stuff we were taught. So you teach that the law is a transcript of his character, but his character becomes a capricious, punishing rule enforcer. That kids grow up going, that makes no sense to me. Why can we not go out to eat on Sabbath, but we can eat in the college cafeteria on Sabbath? Why is it wrong to go to the conference retreat and pull out cash to pay for our Sabbath meal. But it's not wrong to pre-purchase a piece of paper voucher for my Sabbath meal and turn that voucher in at the time of my meal. That's what you get when you have an imperial, penal, legal rule system. Inconsistencies that are irrational and make no sense. And thinking kids grow up and go, that's stupid. Why is it wrong to swim on Sabbath, but it's okay to wade? <laughs> You're laughing. It's funny because it's true. I, mean, I heard the same thing. I mean, he's not making this up. These are the contradictions, unless we teach our kid that God is not, is not as quite as smart as we are. He's not. If he was just a little brighter, he'd figure this out too and, and realize it doesn't make sense. And that's why they throw him off. But when we go through design law, then we realize it all perfectly harmonizes. Always. Every time. It's never contradictory. God is beautiful. His designs are right. It's the only way we have health and happiness in life. Will our children receive education with God at the center? As creator, his design laws, will they receive an education with God and his design laws and his righteousness and his truth in the center in a public school? Are there political movements afoot today that want to get rid of private Christian schools in America and, and require all children go into public schools? Which uh, you, you can decide politically which side of the aisle that is on. I'm not political here. I'm just pointing out movements. But what do you think might happen to private education in America if the government could somehow come up with a scheme which would require students to stay at home for a year and take classes online? Do you think parents are going to pay $15,000 a year for their children to sit in their home and take classes online? Hmm. There are some places, I'm not making this up, folks. There are places in our country right now that private schools are being closed all across the state. Christian schools are being closed. Kids are being forced back into the public school systems now. Do you think this is really being driven by, we just want to protect life? This is that 
deceit we were talking about, or the lie. It's not about protecting life. It is about destroying the eternal life of your children. I've got the references in here documenting the municipalities and the closing of various Christian schools in certain municipalities because they are not allowing the children to go to their Christian schools. They're making them say, and the parents are not paying that big money, and the schools don't have the the state-subsidized taxes to keep them open. You think there's not an attack by certain... Groups in this country today seeking to destroy principles of Christianity in our country? I will tell you right now, there's one progressive city, municipality, that has just come under a letter of cease and desist from the, from the uh, Justice Department of the federal government. Why? Because in that municipality, uh, under the last so many months, they have restricted religious worship in churches and synagogues and mosques to one worshiper at a time. (laughs) Only one is allowed in the building at a time. While that same restriction is not put on barbershops, salons, daycares, stores, etc., etc., etc. In other words, they are not... You understand that the Constitution was written to give special protections to religious practice. Not to treat religion equally with the rest of things, but to give them special protection, meaning that if they restricted the rest of society to assembly and coming together, uh, that religion is not under that restriction. Religion has protection. That changed May 29 of this year. The Supreme Court ruled that... It is legal for states to give the same restrictions to religion as the rest of uh, societies like ball games and sporting events. They can restrict religion now in the same way. But this goes even beyond that. One worshiper in the building at a time. (laughs) Yeah, that was in a different state. In a different state, they restricted to 10 people in the, um, in the churches. That was in uh, Nevada. But casinos could have 500, and so could other theaters. They could have up to 500. Mm. If you read my blog, King of the South, King of the North, King of the South, you will see that I take the position that where we find ourselves in society today is that the King of the South is representative of godless liberalism, or progressivism, or however you want to say it, secularism, maybe you should say it that way. And the king of the north is uh, religious imperialism. And the final movements of these kings, right before Christ comes, is that the king of the south attacks the king of the north aggressively, but the king of the north storms out against him and destroys the king of the south. Um, I think we're seeing the attack of the king of the south that is going to result in a storming out of the king of the north, conservatism, that is going to take the reins of power away from the kings of the south because they have become so corrupt and so abusive and so exploitive and so unreasonable and so demanding that the, the silent, just decent people are going to, going to finally be fed up with it enough that they're going to rise up and form this image to the beast of religious conservatism that is going to take away our liberties. I think we're on the cusp of seeing this movement happening, preparing for the second coming of Christ if I'm right about that, and I put in my blog that this is all speculative and I'm not being dogmatic, and so maybe, maybe it's not exactly how things will unfold. Um, boy, now we're getting to Sunday's lesson. So many more good things in here. Um, I'm going to skip 
uh, some of the things in Sunday's lesson, in fact, um, because I, I want to get to a couple of other points. About Jesus' education, Jesus was not taught in the schools of the prophets. Jesus' education, and there's several good, nice quotes in here from the book Education, Book Christ's Object Lessons, but, but um, this is, I'll read this one of Education, page 77. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. The schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heavenly appointed sources, from useful work, from the study, that's application and doing, okay, that's the law of exertion, from the study of scripture and of the book of nature and the experiences of life, God's lesson books. Integrative, evidence-based approach. Right there, that's how Jesus was taught. That's how we should teach you will discover that the people who hold to the penal legal lie called penal substitution theology constantly argue against the integrative evidence-based approach. They do not want scripture harmonized with science and experience. They insist that scripture is supreme and eh, everything else and, and must be studied on its own. Separate from science. You cannot merge them. Why do they want that? Because when you uncouple scripture from God's laws of reality that reality operate upon, then you can twist it to say anything you want. Then you can introduce imperialism. But if you require scripture to harmonize with reality, then you understand that's design law and all of our interpretations change. You can't have a penal substitution theology under design law. Um, boy. Several interesting, I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson very quickly. Wednesday's lesson, maybe we'll spend a couple minutes here. It just simply says, um, in Wednesday's lesson, let's see, parents have an awesome responsibility. The father is the head of the family, and the family is the nursery of the church, school, and society. If the father is weak, irresponsible, and incompetent, then the family, the church, school, and society will suffer uh, the consequences. Fathers should seek to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. What do you think about this idea that if fathers are weak, family, society, and the church suffers? What are the qualities that make strong men, strong fathers in society, and what factors in our society weaken them? Is the modern feminist movement what is actually happening in society today healthy for families, healthy for women, healthy for men, healthy for society. What is God's design for male-female relationships? I will tell you the design. Equality. Equality of moral worth. Adam and Eve were co-equals, neither to rule over the other, but to have a shared, united self. The two shall become one in love, neither seeking to rule over, but united. And understanding God's design as God designed it, when the two come into the unity of love, that joint union is capable of achieving more than either individual could alone. Understand this. The joint union as God designed it, functioning as God designed, achieves more than either could by themselves. United, their experience of love is magnified beyond what we can love in isolation. Beyond what you can love by loving your pet. Seriously. 
And even the synergy is greater than the sum of the parts. The synergy is greater than the sum. That's good. Their ability to procreate and have children is a manifestation of that other-centered beneficence and giving in a unity of love that they cannot achieve on their own. Their ability to discern, to learn, to develop, to expand is enhanced from their shared perspectives, valuing and cherishing each other's perspectives as valuable. In other words, my wife sees the world differently than I see it, and I learn from her, and her perspectives are valuable. That enhances me, and hopefully mine enhance her. You'll have to ask her about that. (laughs) And I believe their united selves also create strengths that neither have alone. In fact, we know that physical health is improved in healthy, loving marriage relationships. People live longer, have less illness. They have physical strength, but there's more than that. God's design builds up both parties more than either would have as single individuals. But... When God's designs and methods are violated, then injury and harm occurs. And so I want to say this very clearly. It's better to live as a single individual than to be in a marriage relationship with the wrong person or an unhealthy person. Very clearly. God's design for marriage is warped, damaged, and distorted in ways that injure both men and women by polygamy, Male domination over women, in which women become property to be bartered by their fathers or other men, women having no individual rights, women that are separated, um, uh, separate from their husband or what their husband grants them, uh, women being somehow subordinated under the domination, control, or authority of a man, uh, women being physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually abused by their husbands. All of this damages both parties. Women being denied education. Women being denied liberty of, free, of, 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 of their own person to act and to speak with autonomy. Women being denied equal job opportunity. Uh, in other words, they can't work in certain fields simply because they're a woman, not because of their ability. Being paid less than a man for the same work. To the degree that initiatives work to restore God's principles and God's designs, truth, love, liberty, equality, these principles are healthy for men, healthy for women, and healthy for society. So initiatives to give women equality, individuality, freedom, these are healthy. But initiatives that go beyond this are damaging. So is modern feminism today a movement seeking only to promote the equality of men and women? Or is modern feminism seeking to destroy maleness and masculinity? I want to suggest that modern feminism movement is a great example of how every good thing we pursue gets corrupted when we use the methods of the state. If we were to pursue conversion to Jesus Christ, good thing but we use state laws to force it upon people, we will corrupt the message of Jesus Christ and hurt people. Okay? So as soon as you use the methods of the state to get there, uh, the only righteous use of of state powers are to restrain evil. So uh, creating atmospheres of freedom and liberty, righteous use of the state. Forcing people, though, not so good. So let's examine and compare 
God's design with modern feminism. Do you see messages in society that uplift maleness, masculinity, and men in general as being the most godly bastions of Christ-like leadership possible when those men are surrendered to God and following his principles? Or is the messaging from feminism that maleness, masculinity, is bad, abusive, something to be opposed, that if men are leading, then somehow women are being exploited? Well, just consider. God made male and female, men and women, and he gave them complementary abilities. He did not give them equal abilities. He gave them comp- That's why we are better together than either one by themselves. If somebody, uh, General Patton, famous World War II general for those who don't know, used to say, if everybody's thinking the same thing, somebody's not thinking. <laughs> if we all bring the same exact abilities and strengths to bear, we are not enhanced by that. We are enhanced because men and women bring different qualities to bear. And when they're joined together in mutual love and respect, that is the best for all parties. If we dominate and suppress women, as has happened in the past, this damages and injures and corrupts both men and women. But if we dominate and suppress men today as somehow a remedy for past wrongs towards women we will only cause a new form of damage. So which of the following is held up by feminism today as the great ideal for women? Retain your virginity until you find a man to marry and then enter into a lifelong marriage with a man who will love and respect you. Or your body is your own and have sex outside of marriage with anyone you please, male or female. Modern feminism is about the degrading of the purity, if you will, the sanctity of femininity. It is to debase women through things like this, through uh, espousing a truth in a very perverse way. It is true that you have been given governance by God over how you govern yourselves, as we have. And it is also true through history uh, that men have often been um, exploitive of women and often not necessarily been faithful through history. And that women have been uh, more faithful through the threat of being killed if they were caught uh, being unfaithful. They would be taken out and stoned in their society where the men would not be. And so through that penal punitive consequence, women were often kept more pure in their um, practices of their own governance of their own sexuality than men. Um, so the messaging of feminism is you don't need to be. Sleep with anybody you want anytime. It's all good. Or so the, ma- the messaging. Do you see the message of God's kingdom being one of, irrespective of what society says, you're healthier and happier by remaining in a pure state or a un, uh, un, you know, keeping your body for your spouse and entering into a loving, committed marriage. You'll be better and happier for it. Okay? Uh, embrace your, fe- here's another one. Embrace your femininity and love others more than self by becoming a mother. And living, uh, and live at home and raise your children in a godly, uh, in godly love with a supportive and godly loving husband. Or seek to get the best career for yourself. Don't sacrifice. Don't have kids. Um, don't surrender yourself, uh, for others. If you have some biological urges, just pick someone up at the bar, gratify yourself, and stay on your career path. Oh, and, and abort your pregnancy. 
Yeah. Uh, men, uh, or how about this one? Men, ha- is this the message of modern feminism? Men have abilities, strengths, and qualities that women do not have. And they can do some things better than women. And society functions best when we embrace and promote a healthy harmony of both male and female strengths in which they are united in love or... Men have nothing of real value to offer, and society society and women would be much better off if men would simply withdraw from leadership and let women run everything. (laughs) Do you think I overstate these positions? Understand, there is a real agenda to destroy God's design. This is just one attack of many. Yes? It seemed like with the feminism thing that there were some inequalities, unjust inequalities, like women couldn't get certain jobs. And, yeah, I said that. And But they went too far. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Is that there was a, there's a tendency somehow. Then they go too far with it, and then you lose the... Thank you for bringing this up. Lest it be said that I am uh, being in balance, because I, I thought I said it. Maybe I didn't say it clearly. I thought I said that men have dominated and exploited and abused women throughout history. That they were not given autonomy rights. They were not given equal pay for equal work. They were not uh, treated as sentient beings of equal value. This is historically true through history. And this was wrong and it damaged, I thought I said, both men and women. But maybe I didn't say this clearly. So let me say this clearly. I thought I said it, but maybe I didn't. To the degree that movements restored God's balance and design, equality of both, autonomy for both, equal opportunity for both, uh, that is a righteous and healthy thing to do. I'm pretty sure I did say that. Okay? That is perhaps the origins of the modern feminism movement. Maybe that's where it started with the suffrage movement for voting and things like that. But that's not where it is today. And, and we're out of time, so so that's not. But but some people accuse me of 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 and and many of the people who were in the modernist feminist movement they get real apoplectic with me for bringing this up because they merge and they mix. They still stay and they anytime they want to argue with me, they will argue over the historical stuff. Like, well, do you not think women had the right to vote? Uh, do you not think that they should be paid the same for the same work? Okay, that is not. What modern feminism is about today? It's like okay. to you. Yeah, those things are, of course, and I've already, I've already, already given that. We've already acquiesced to that. That's already a stated position. Of course, equality, God's design, equality for both. But what's happening in the modern feminism is a great deceit to destroy the role of men and to really cause men to be afraid to actually be men in our society today, and it's quite destructive. So, gracious Father in heaven, we pray that uh, your spirit of truth and love will be poured out on all receptive hearts and minds, and that people will have the anointing to their eyes to discern and to see how how the enemy is moving in our in our midst to try to corrupt and to trick and to persuade uh, to practice and participate in movements and situations that are clearly antagonistic to to the way you run your universe, Lord. 
We want to be prepared to meet you. We can see the movements uh, are preparing the world for a grand global deception. And we, we want to stand apart from that. We don't want to be part of any political party, earthly government. We want to be part of the kingdom of God. And, and we want to love every human being as you have loved us. And we want to promote the, the development and the restoration of full Christ-likeness in every human being, regardless of, of their gender or their race or their cultural background. And so help us not to be sucked into some of these divisive uh, practices and, and instead promote the, the methods of your kingdom effectively. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.